Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Since the beginning of this year, more than a dozen Democrats have entered the 2020 presidential primary race. For most candidates, an official start to a presidential bid is usually pretty clear. They announce their plan to run, they head out on the trail, and they begin the work of fundraising. For a sitting president, though, the distinct moment when a re-election campaign begins can be less clear. After all, a president travels around the country, speaks to large crowds, and shares his message for America's future all the time. That got me thinking, is a president required to wait a certain amount of time after his inauguration before beginning his bid for a re-election? And further, what sorts of limits exist on the way a president divides his time between campaigning and governing an entire country? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. It turns out that President Trump's campaign for 2020 began just after he won the 2016 election. He filed his campaign officially with the Federal Election Commission, the body that allows him to start fundraising, on his inauguration day. And since then, Trump has raised more money than any other sitting president at this point in an election cycle. And he's held quite a few campaign rallies. Washington Post reporter Jenna Johnson has been attending and reporting on Trump's rallies for years now. Rallies that continued after Trump won the 2016 election and began serving the American people as president. He kept having campaign rallies that were organized by his campaign, which was very unusual for a sitting president to have an active re-election campaign going literally just days or weeks into his new presidency. Before I dove into the laws governing any president's re-election bid, I talked to Jenna about how our current president has handled this. He didn't stop doing them. He didn't transition to speaking to the whole country through only presidential addresses. He kept doing these events, kept rallying his supporters, kept trying to get them riled up about whatever policy issues he was working on, or more often, uh, which new rivals he wanted them to unite against. Mm -hmm. Does some of of his repeatedly speaking to his base come from a perception that the voters elected him and therefore he has a mandate to sort of act on the will of the base of his own base? Yeah, I mean, that's that's what he's doing. Uh, he seems to answer only to his base. A lot of times you'll see presidents come into office and kind of expand their view, try to reach out to all Americans, not just those who put them into office. But the president has remained very focused on his core supporters and not just Republicans who voted for him or independents who voted for him or people in general who voted for him, but like his diehard supporters, those who believe in him and everything he says and will defend him on everything he says and will wait in line for hours to see his rallies. Those are the people that he's remained just very, very focused on. And given that that's presumably a small portion of the electorate, why? Why does he feel that the need to, to please these people or to cater to these people? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, because when you look at if he's going to be going into 2020 and wanting to be reelected, it's not just his base that's going to reelect him. It's going to be Democrats staying home, independents voting for him, Republicans showing up and voting for him. It's more than just his base that got him into office. And it'll have to be more than his base to keep him in office. And yet, his base is where his focus is. Trump began his presidential campaign, his presidential re-election campaign, earlier than any president in history. And often presidents sort of wait for a fear of the perception that they're perpetually campaigning. Why would Trump be willing to take a risk that so many other presidents were unwilling to take by starting sort of immediately to, to campaign again? He, because he doesn't care. To him, why stop? He doesn't care about perception. He doesn't care if people get mad at him for perpetually campaigning. He likes campaigning. He's going to campaign. And also, this allows his campaign committee to have greater control over events. When he gives a presidential speech and the White House organizes it, you can't really pick and choose which Americans come in. You have less control over the crowd. Uh, when you have a campaign event, you can say it's only for ticketed supporters. You can kick out protesters. You can kick out people that you think might be protesters. And you can gather information from all of the people who are attending. Email addresses, addresses, zip codes, all of this information that the Trump campaign is keeping in a database to just better understand who their supporters are and to better target them. What are the greatest challenges for Trump then? to govern effectively if he's sort of perpetually campaigning? What what are the big challenges for him? Well, it can be difficult to govern the country when you're flying all over the place, doing rallies and following media coverage of your potential opponents and and tweeting and, and things like that. But again, this this is a president who does things completely different than other presidents, whose priorities are completely different than presidents, other presidents um, who spends his time differently than other presidents. And even if people criticize him for spending too much time promoting himself and promoting his future campaign uh, and not governing, he doesn't care and he's not going to change the way that he's doing things. The lines defining where a president's official government operation ends and his campaign operation begins can be murky. So to clarify those legal lines for me, I turn to Brendan Doherty, a political science professor at the United States Naval Academy. Brendan, who talked to me via Skype, has written extensively on president's seemingly permanent campaigns. First, I asked him, are there rules to when a president can or can't start a campaign? There are no official limits to when a president can begin campaigning. Presidents are limited only by their desire and by the normative pressure to be seen as governing instead of campaigning. But that is a, a norm that has become less compelling over time as recent presidents have begun their re-election campaigns progressively earlier. Now, why has that become less appealing over time? The pressure to fundraise is at the heart of earlier starts to presidential re-election campaigns. Decades ago, presidents seeking re-election relied on public funding, which limited the amount of money that they had to raise and could raise under federal election campaign laws. 2004 was the first year when a sitting president did not use public funding for either the nominating stage or the general election stage. And that freed the president 
President Bush in this case to raise more money and spend more time doing so. And it ratcheted up the pressure on future presidents to follow suit, to reject public funding, to spend more time raising money. So prior to 2004, just for my understanding, public funding was used towards some campaign work for a, a sitting president? The public funding system is complicated, but the basic bargain is that campaigns can receive public funding for their election efforts in exchange for agreeing to limits on how much they raise and spend. And those funds are no longer adequate, no longer sufficient to run a competitive campaign. So in recent elections, candidates haven't even considered taking them, and they spend far more time raising money than they used to. Do presidents have to formalize a campaign start date? Do they have to say, now I have begun campaigning? How does that work? It's a good question. So there's there are two different starts to a campaign. One is the legal start to the campaign when a campaign files its re-election paperwork. And then there's the point in time when a president starts campaigning, attending campaign events, raising funds. Uh, and those often come at different times. It used to be the case decades ago that presidents would file their re-election campaign paperwork and then go to great lengths to say that they still had not decided if they were going to run, but they were filing the paperwork just in case they chose to seek a second term. Now, presidents have to raise so much money and they start so early and they raise money soon after they file for re-election that there's no real pretense that they might not run. So recent presidents have begun their re-election fundraising progressively earlier. The first President Bush held his first re-election fundraiser on October 31st of 1991, his third year in office. Bill Clinton held his first re-election fundraiser on June 22nd of his third year in office. George W. Bush on June 17th of his third year in office. Barack Obama on April 14th of his third year in office. So the four presidents prior to President Trump were starting earlier and earlier in year three. President Trump held his first re-election fundraiser on June 28th of his first year in office, which was a dramatic acceleration of this trend of earlier starts to re-election fundraising. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com. Let's talk a little bit about sort of the limitations a president can make once he has started, once he has declared this this fundraising start. So one of the things that I have a question around is if you're a president and you're sitting in the Oval Office and you want to call a donor and ask for money, is mm. that something that is allowed within presidential power for you to do that from, from the office of the president, sitting there in the Oval Office? It is illegal to fundraise on federal property. So presidents may not fundraise from the White House itself. So when President Trump, President Obama would hold a fundraiser in Washington, D.C., they would go around the corner to the Jefferson Hotel or the Trump Hotel to a nearby facility. That said, many presidents will reward their donors by inviting them to the White House. Ah. Uh, and this line became glorious during Bill Clinton's reelection campaign when he held a series of so-called White House coffees with donors that were seen as fundraisers in all but name, but were Technically, the White House insisted not fundraisers. They were instead donor cultivation events. 
Okay, but one thing to note is that the campaign operation is a separate organization that's designed to function completely separately from the White House. So where exactly are the lines drawn for where his work as president governing ends and where his work as candidate or campaigner begins? The lines between campaigning and governing have become far more blurred over the years. Presidents are always on the job, even when they are engaged in electorally focused activities. When a president is in Washington, he can zip around the corner, attend a fundraiser, and be back at the White House in about an hour. But presidents also spend a lot of time traveling around the country to fundraise. And that's when you run into issues of whether the president is campaigning or governing or both. Um, And this is reflected in the way that presidents and their campaigns have to pay for fundraising travel. So we have the sort of world of raising money where the presidents are limited in exactly where they can be when they make requests and what they could host at the White House and on other federal property. And then we have the idea of spending money. So let's talk about that. The first time a president runs for office as purely a candidate and not as the president, his expenses, things like travel, security, food, lodging, they're presumably covered by his money his campaign has raised. But then when it comes to running for a second term, many of those expenses for a president are already covered by taxpayer dollars. So you have the president who already has security. He presumably already has food provided. Where are the lines drawn then when a president is traveling for campaign purposes? Are his expenses coming from campaign money or from taxpayer money? When a president travels to campaign, taxpayers still pay most of the bill. Campaigns will pay a prorated portion of the costs of a president's travel when a president is traveling to fundraise or for an explicit campaign rally. But the logic is that the president is always the president and that the president needs to have secret service with him at all times, needs to have his military team providing communications support at all times, needs to have policy advisors with him. And while he's on Air Force One flying down to Miami for a fundraiser, he might also be talking to congressional leaders, talking with world leaders and performing his job as president. So then how is the prorating determined? Kind of what falls into which bucket? So there are two factors that come into play when determining how much campaigns have to pay when the president travels for political reasons. If a trip has events that are only explicitly political or electoral in nature, then there is a formula by which campaigns have to repay the federal government the cost that it would have cost to charter a plane for the people traveling with the president who are only there for the campaign-related purpose, which only covers a relatively small fraction of the cost of what it actually takes to fly the president around the country. But there's not a lot of transparency here. The full cost of presidential travel and the amount that campaigns pay in order to bring a president to town to campaign to fundraise is something that we don't have a real clear picture of, unfortunately. But one thing we do know, or at least can safely assume, is that as presidents begin to campaign earlier and earlier and therefore do more campaign-related travel, the cost goes up for the taxpayer because there are certain responsibilities to protecting and caring for a president that come out of the taxpayer dollars, even for campaign events. Yes, that's absolutely fair. So money aside, why is it sort of a negative thing for a president to be seen as campaigning from the get-go? Presidents always wear two hats. They must be the unifying leader of the nation, but they're also advancing a partisan agenda that is sure to divide us. And presidents often try to be the unifier in chief, even when substantial parts of the nation do not agree with what they're doing. It is much harder to unify when presidents are 
campaigning. And because of this, they don't want to be seen as campaigning, as neglecting their job, as looking out for their own personal interests instead of the nation's interests too early in their term. And this has really changed over time. In June of 1983, Ronald Reagan was in Minnesota and he was asked if he would seek a second term. And he said that it was far too early for him to say so. Uh, And he said that if he said yes, then the media would label everything he did as political. Fast forward to 2017 and on January 20th, President Trump's first day in office, he files paperwork to establish his reelection campaign. Even President Obama and President Bush both started fundraising early in their third year in office. But President Obama, when he kicked off his fundraising in April of 2011, President Obama declared, quote, there's going to be a time when I'll fully engage in this race. When the time comes, I will be campaigning. I'll be ready to go. But I've got to tell you right now, I still have this day job. George W. Bush in 2003 at fundraiser after fundraiser, he used the exact same line. The political season will come in its own time. For me, now is not the time for politics. You see, I've got a job to do. Presidents very much want to be perceived as tending to the people's business and to the nation's business and not to their own partisan political electoral interests. So does the way a president shapes his message change necessarily when he's trying to appeal to those who will reelect him versus the entire country he serves? Do we see that messaging change from the time a president declares that he's running? Campaigning and governing are inherently different enterprises. Ken Duberstein, who was Ronald Reagan's final chief of staff, said this beautifully. He said, in campaigning, you try to annihilate your opponent. Governing, you try to make love to your opponent as well as your allies. And there really is a difference. When you are governing, you are looking for common ground. You are looking for compromise. You're trying to solve problems. When you're campaigning, you are criticizing the other side. You are emphasizing that your positions are the best way to the more perfect union. And you're looking ahead to the next election where you want the other side voted out of office. It's a fundamentally different dynamic. And focusing on campaigning early does highlight the divisive nature of presidential leadership in a way that makes it challenging to then turn around and come together and seek bipartisan compromise. Brendan, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been another episode of Can You Do That? If you liked it, subscribe wherever you subscribe to podcasts and share it wherever you share things. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the delightful Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 